0: Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are a good and a gracious God. You are faithful to reveal Yourself not only through Your Word, but most importantly, to the One of whom the Word speaks through the work of Your Son. Thank You for Jesus. And thank You that He is a good King. A gracious King. A King that we should submit all of our life to. Teach us, Father, now through your word, we ask in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, before I begin, let me say thank you to Ruth. I know you don't want me to talk about you, but I'm just going to do it. So grateful to you for your service as you leave our church. You've been here faithfully serving for years. And so we're grateful for you as you go to Switzerland. Uh, if you're coming into this church and you want to join this church, or maybe you've just joined this church and you want to know, how can I leave this church in a better place than it was when I joined it? Let me invite you to go and ask that question to Ruth. I think much of her life would testify to what it looks like to join a church and to help it and to strengthen it. So she will probably not want to talk to you, uh, uh, but she'll have friends around her to help articulate herself uh, as she goes. Uh, well, today we are uh, we're concluding our study in the book of Judges, and so if you uh, if you've joined us today for the first time, welcome. We're glad you're here. We've been walking through the book of Judges. We started it uh, way back at the end of January. We preach some 12 sermons through the book of Judges, a couple introductory sermons on top of that. And we entitled the book, this series through Judges, The Supremacy of Self. Subtitle, What Happens to a People When They Reject God and Do Whatever is Right in Their Own Eyes. That's what we've been looking at. And what we have seen as we've walked through that book is that the more people reject God as king and live with themselves as king, the more chaos, carnage, and confusion reigns. In other words, The more people reject God's ways, the more people did as they pleased, the worse things became. That's what we've seen. And eventually, chaos came by the end of the book. And so though highly favored by God, Israel became just like those pagan nations around them. And nothing, by the way, seemed sort of that seemed interesting to them. It seemed sort of nothing about that seemed odd to them. And so, friends, as it was true for them to be conformed to the world around them, so it can be true for us. As well. Considering the books of the Old Testament. uh, The Apostle Peter writes in the New Testament. That we have the prophetic word. More fully confirmed. To which you would do well to pay attention. As to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And so friends may we. Pay attention to the prophetic word. Because remember. This is not man's words about God. The Bible is not man's words about God. But it is God's word to man and so may we know what it is to have a life with God and a life with one another and so here's what I'm going to do this morning before we get started I'm going to kind of pull the airplane up to about 35,000 feet all right and we're going to kind of give an overview of how the Bible works and how it's fitted together and then I'll bring the plane to about 10 down to about 10,000 feet and then we'll think about judges as a whole and then we'll make some conclusions for ourselves at the end of that. So the Bible is uh, put together in a series of about 66 books. Not about it, it is 66 books. The Bible is 66 books. The Old Testament is organized. Uh, there's, it's broken into two, two sections. The Bible is broken into two sections. 66 books, two sections. The Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament has 39 books. The tw- New Testament, 27 books. And those Old Testament is organized. Those 39 books are organized into three sections, which are telling the story of God and his work amongst his people. So those three sections start out as follows. The first section of the Old Testament is organized, carefully organized to is the, what's often called the Law or the Torah. So it's first five books from Genesis over to uh, Deuteronomy. Uh, that is about the covenant of God's people. How He's giving His covenant to His people. The second section is where the book of Judges is found. That's called the Prophets. The Prophets. And that's the covenant history of God's Word to His people. That encompasses Joshua all the way to Micah. Our Malachi. The third section is, uh, talking about, uh, the writings. It's the covenant life of God's people. It's called the writings. Covenant life of God's people. What it's like to live inside of this covenant. And so in the Old Testament, and you have a carefully crafted narrative of three ideas starting covenant, covenant history, covenant life. Covenant life. That's the, that's how the Old Testament is organized. And so just like a well crafted movie, The Old Testament is intentionally organized in this way in order to prepare us for a king who is the Messiah that will come down and establish a new covenant that will be better than this old covenant. And it's better because unlike the old covenant, the new covenant is built on promises that God fulfills in his perfect son in his perfect son, the king of kings, Jesus the Christ. And so those final 27 books in the New Testament, they are the testimony of that new covenant. And so as a result of those promises being fulfilled, the Bible is now closed to any new revelation. And so in light of that, since the Old Testament or the Old Covenant is organized, as I mentioned, to prepare us for the promise of King Jesus in the new covenant, then we should understand judges to be pointing us intentionally to Jesus. In other words, Judges, the book of Judges points us to Jesus as the king that Israel did not have or want because they were doing what was right in their own eyes and they became blind to their own idolatry. And so in light of this kind of thirty five thousand foot view, let's now lower the plane down to about ten thousand feet and review the book of Judges. And then we'll again, we'll leave with some application for our lives as Christians, as citizens in the kingdom of heaven. Judges documents the early days of Israel coming into the land to take down the wicked nations and to raise up a witness for the glory of Christ in the land. They're supposed to illustrate to the world what a life with the one true God was like. So they're coming in to take down the bad witness of false worship, bring up the true worship of God. We learned, if you recall, way back in Deuteronomy seven, that Israel was meant to be a holy people as they came into the land, a people that was set apart from the world, not like the world. And so as a result, they were not as they went in, they were to not make any treaties or any compromises to bring about the destruction of the people in the land that were already there, the Canaanites. Now, if you will recall, we talked about how the destruction of the people in the land was not genocide like some accuse. Genocide is motivated by the destruction of a race in preference of another race. This is clearly not God's motive. This is not God's motive, as is evidenced by the fact that He's punishing Israel just as much as He is punishing the Canaanites in the land. God's motive was righteousness and justice in the land for His glory. He's graciously choosing Israel, though they didn't deserve it. The nations that were in the land were evil. Therefore, God was punishing that evil. That's His motive. We can read this in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4. Where the Lord says, do not say in your heart, he's speaking to Israel, do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, do not say it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land, where it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. And so Joshua, we find in the book of Joshua, they come into the land Joshua is a good leader. Things tend to go sort of well in large part. They make some, a few compromises along the way. But Judges picks up the story after jo- Joshua dies. So Israel is still coming into the land. And we see in Judges chapter 1, you can turn there, take a look at that. Judges chapter 1 from verse 1 down to 19, things tend to go well. They're driving out the people in front of them. The Lord is bringing them victory. But then things change in verse 20, of chapter 1. Uh, Through to the uh, end of the book, we see right here, it starts in chapter 1, we see a list of tribes that do not drive out the nations in front of them. They kind of compromise. And this is where the spiral down begins. In chapter 1, verse 27, we see Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bessian and its villages. Chapter 1, verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. Chapter 1, verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Chapter 1, verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. Chapter 1, verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anoth, So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anoth became subject to forced labor for them. In other words, what we read there, friends, is that Israel did compromise as they were told not to do. They made their sin against God work for them. They made their sin against God work for their own benefit. And we get this in the Lord's response in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. It says this in response to that. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? By the way, you remember that sounded the exact same question back in Genesis 3. Where the fall occurs. Verse 3. So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. There's the result. But they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel... The people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bokim. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. And so in the rest of the book, we see what we just read there. This is exactly what happens. It's exactly what happens. The rest of the book testifies to what happens. These nations do become a thorn to Israel. Till eventually they were no longer thorns, but pillows to Israel. Because they became just like them. And so we get a taste of that straight away. Right down there in chapter 2, verse 11, where it says this, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. That's the false gods. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people, note this, who were around them and bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord To anger. And there's the refrain, guys. That's the refrain that we see all throughout the rest of the book. We see this refrain of Israel doing evil. Six times we read it. Chapter 3, verse 7, 3, 12, 4, 1, 6, 1, 10, 6, 13, 1. Same thing. Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And here's what's amazing about that, guys. Every time we read those testimonies of Israel again doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord, every time we hear that, It's coming right after the Lord had been merciful to them. Right after merciful. God had been so good to them, they enjoy it for some time. There's peace in the land, and then they get evil. They just begin to do evil. They reject the Lord's mercy. And that was the pattern. You guys remember the pattern that we see all through. Israel would be disobedient, which led God to then punish them by handing them over to their enemies. This then led to rampant destruction in Israel, which led to Israel then calling out to God in distress which then led to God mercifully delivering them from those enemies, oftentimes by judges, which, by the way, is why we get the name of this book, Judges. That's this cycle. Disobedience led to destruction, led to distress, led to deliverance. Now, there were 12 judges that the Lord raised up uh, in order to deliver them from external enemies. That's often their job is not to be internal adjudicators, but to be external deliverers. So we can read about them in Judges 2.16. It describes these judges well. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. There it is. And so while the Lord worked through all of them, similar to the story of judges, those judges got progressively a little bit worse as the story goes on. You, you guys remember it started with the story of Othniel. Othniel who delivered Israel from Cushan rishathaim onto Ehud. How can you forget Ehud, the left-handed man? Right? who destroyed the evil leader Eglon. Then to Shamgar. Then the noble Deborah, who was the only non-military external deliverer. On to Gideon, who delivered Israel from the Midianites by the Lord, weakening the army so as to show where their strength came from. Gideon then led off into a series of really, really bad judges. You guys remember Abimelech, who's killed by a millstone. Right? After him then came the more obscure judges, Tola Jair, that outcast, Jephthah, and his foolish vow. Then came some more obscure judges, Ibzon, Elon, Abdon, Till eventually we met Samson, who was ruled by his sensuality. And after each deliverance by the judges, Israel would then fall deeper into sin and darkness, even though the Lord had been merciful to them. Thus the cycle we saw over and over and over. Disobedience, Led to destruction led to distress, led to merciful deliverance, which led Israel to forgetfulness. And as each cycle channeled through, things got darker and darker until we, led, until we left off where we did last week, in chapter 19 to 21, 19 to 21. And there we saw the depravity of uh, just awful depravity, things that include rape, murder, civil war and the pillaging of their very own people. In other words, the point of the book there is to show at the end that Israel had become just like their neighbors. They had become Canaanized. Israel, instead of being holy, set apart from the worship around them, they conformed to it and became no different than the people they were supposed to take down. And the conclusion as to why all of that happened, what seems to be the point of the book, is found in the very last sentence of the book. A sentence you recall that was repeated time and again at the end. Judges 21, 21, 20, Five. Why did these things turn out like this? Verse 26, I should say. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so, friends, this is the prophetic word that we would do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place. We would do well to pay attention because, friends, the reality is not much has changed. Not much has changed. Because the reality is, friends, a king did come to Israel. And His name was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the faithful One, the Son of God, He secured salvation for all those who believe. And yet here's the thing, guys. On this side of the cross and the resurrection, on this side of the cross and the resurrection, God has not only handed Israel over to her enemies, He has handed the whole world over to its own passions exactly what we read about in the Bible. Things are now chaotic, idolatrous and brutal. And by the way, this includes uh, so-called Christian nations. And and so why is this? Why is it we living in a world of such chaos and carnage? Why is this? It's the same problem that the Israelites had. We reject God as king and we try to be kings of ourselves. That's why. Referencing the world, Romans chapter 1. Verse 21 to 26 says the following. Take a look at that verse You can turn over there. This is referencing the world. This is the teaching as to what happens when a people do what is right in their own eyes. Today, inside or this side of the cross, 21, Romans 121 says this. For although they knew God, he's referencing the world, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they, the world, became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creep- creeping things. So, what happens? Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up and the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because, circle this verse, because, why did all this happen? Why the chaos? Because they exchanged the truth about God, namely that He is King, for a lie. And worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the world we live in today, friends. They, that is the world, we, us, exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. For this reason, God gave them up. Friends, this is just another way of saying what we saw in Judges. That mankind has exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and so now the world rejects God as king and does whatever is right in his own eyes. That's just another way of saying that. And for this reason, God has given the world up to dishonorable passions. That's his passive wrath. He just lets people do whatever they want to do. And so therefore, when you're watching the news and you're trying to make sense of a world in madness, when you're watching those terrible shootings again on Friday and you're trying to make sense of the world around us, friends, you should know this is the answer. Our, our, Our world of chaos and carnage, our society that is marked more and more by this confusion, here is your ultimate answer. Mankind has made a terrible exchange. We have traded the truth for a lie we serve the creature rather than the creator we reject christ as king we do whatever we think is right instead of what he knows is right and as a result of this terrible exchange god punishes the world by handing us over to our desires similar to what a parent might do to let them just have all the candy that they want so they would then be sick and miserable so that they would know that they need restraint so god has done in the world he gives us what we want He allows us to reject Him as King, to do whatever is right in our own eyes, so we're left with the same kind of world that judges had. A world full of broken relationships and broken hearts. Hearts that long for redemption and restoration of a world in rebellion. And here is where Jesus steps in to save us from ourselves. This is where the Gospel breaks in so beautifully. This is the light that's shining in a darkened place. Jesus, friend, is able to pull us up out of this terrible exchange that we so often make. He says when He came, that He came to seek and to save the lost. He came preaching a kingdom of heaven while on earth. He gives us a preview of that kingdom in His healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, raising the dead. But most importantly, He says that He has come to cure us of self-rule. By dying for the sin of self-rule. See, friends, Jesus knew, don't miss this, Jesus knew that behavioral sort of change, self-help, or moralizing would never change a world in need. He knew that. He knew the root of sin, of the sin of self-rule, had to be dealt with if redemption and restoration of the world was ever going to come. That's the only thing that would kind of pull us up out of that tailspin. Sin against God, trying to, See, God is sort of something under us, something that we use. And so he came to strike that at its root. And that's exactly what's going on in the cross of Christ. We're in Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, who does live a sinless life. He does live as though God is king. He submits himself to him. Remember in the garden when he says when he wants that cup to pass from him, what does he say? Not as I will, but as you will. See, he's doing what is right in God's eyes. And as a result, he can. He's the only one that can offer. So you ever ask that question? Why why does it have to be Jesus to die? for sin? Nathan, no matter how good Nathan is, I can't die for your sin. I'm a sinner. Christ was the sinless one. The one whose sacrifice is able to save sinners who try and live as though they are in control. And bring more chaos into the world. He's the only one. He purchased redemption for those that believe. He paid their penalty of sin. The kind of stuff where God is handing them over. Remember to the Old Testament. He's handing them over those punishments. Now God, for those that trust Jesus. Now that punishment was laid on Jesus at the cross. And so now he satisfies that wrath. That punishment that should come to us. And we then should ask the question. Well, well, was it received? Was that sacrifice received? So as to stop the tail spin down. And that's why the resurrection, friends, is so important. He's the only one that is raised from the dead after He said that He would. The resurrection is the first fruits that points to a new and better world of healing and of health. And don't miss His final words when we think about judges and a king. Don't miss His final words when He says to His disciple, all authority and heaven and on earth are mine. What did He just say there? I'm king. I'm king. A king that came near to us. He dealt with sin by satisfying the payment for us that believe on the cross. And then he says to us that believe now, follow me. He says to the world, follow me as king. Repent of self rule. Follow me as king. He says, I've paid your debt. I've proven my love for you. So now find redemption and restoration in submitting all of your life to all of me. Friends, this is what it means to be a Christian. We renounce the the supremacy of self. We are suspicious of ourselves and our inclinations for living for our own glory and ease. We pick up our crosses and we die to ourselves. And we follow Him as King. We are not our own authorities. We are not our own authorities. We are now, as the church, to be a people that is holy. Set apart as Israel was supposed to be. We are citizens of a country that everyone wants but can never seem to find. A better city. A city, citizens of a better city. A city of no pain, no suffering, no death. A city where there's no self-rule, but only rule of the one true and living King, Christ the Lord. That is our home. And that's what we wait for. We have learned and are learning. If you're here and you're not a Christian, welcome. You should know, well, I know you Christians, and I know you don't seem to follow this beautiful Jesus. That's true. We're still learning how to do this. That's why we come here every week. That's why we confess our sins. Know that we're be forgiven we have learned and are learning to recover from self-rule and doing as we please as we give ourselves to king jesus and to jesus's people this is the story that judges points us to this story of redemption of a good king and so we're left to ask then the question what should we take away what are, what are some takeaways what are some takeaways as we walk away from the book of judges Simple answer is, is just to reject doing what is right in your own eyes and follow Jesus as king. But you say, yeah, that's, that's great, Nathan. I've heard you say that 10,000 times over the last three months. What does that look like, though? Two ways. First, these are our applications. We reject self-righteousness. Secondly, we reject self-rule. First, what does it look like to live as though Christ were king and we don't do what is right in our own eyes? We reject first self-righteousness. Now, did you guys hear Deuteronomy 9, 4? Did you hear what it said there? I'll read it to you again. God says to them, do not say in your heart, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me into the possess the land. See, the Lord knew that as he had chosen Israel and used them to drive out the wicked nations in front of them, that they would start to believe their own press. They would start thinking that they were strong enough, that they could do this on their own. They would lose sight of God. They might still confess Him with their mouth, but they started believing in the strength of themselves. We can think back to that passage we looked at last week, 19 to 21. Think about that, how Israel had 400,000 soldiers. And they went up against the Benjamites that had how many? 26,700. How did it go for Israel? They lost and lost badly. Those first two battles. And by the way, they even spoke to God about it. They even heard from God about it. But he was only, listen, it was only until Israel recognized their own sin, sacrificed peace offering to the Lord, that victory finally came. We can remember the Lord whittling down Gideon's army from 30,000 to 300 before victory came over the Midianites. And this was done so that God would get the glory, which points us to Jesus who won by weakness on the cross. Friends, so it is with us. We gained heaven, not by our righteous deeds, but by Christ's humble work on our behalf. We could and can do nothing to earn any good thing. Every single good and perfect good comes down from the Father of lights. We would do well to remember that. Because we kind of believe our own press, don't we? It's easy to look at the people around us and say, yep, there you go. All those people, you know, if they were only as good as me, they wouldn't be dealing with all that. We forget this so often. Our righteousness is in Christ. Think about Samson. Right Here's a guy, maybe the most powerful guy in the world. Strongest guy in the world. Who knows what this guy could have done had he submitted himself to God instead of submitting himself to his own sensuality. Here's a guy where, humanly speaking, very strong, but spiritually pe- uh, speaking, he was a weak man. A weak man. And it was only until he was humbled. It was only until he was humbled in the temple of Dagon. You Remember that? Wherein he then... His eyes have been gorged out. He has no strength. And he asked, then he recognizes his need for God. And the Lord God then gave him that strength. And then he died sacrificing himself. And don't miss that little epitaph. You all remember that? Wherein it said that Samson killed more in his death than he did in his whole life. Why is that there? To show you that we have to die to ourselves before we do anything good for the glory of Christ. These are words to live by. In many ways, all of us who are in Christ are like Samson in Christ. We have supernatural power available to us. We have insight into the scriptures, which gives us insight into the world, which grants us a kind of power that the world doesn't have. And so through our gospel preaching and our gospel living, we can take down wickedness by God's grace around us. And so in light of that, therefore, we have two options to live in Christ. Either we live like Samson when he lived and God uses a lot of our sinful self-righteousness and he uses a little bit to do his work. Or like Samson, we die to ourselves and he does more. He does more. All of that depends upon us rejecting self-righteousness, trusting King Jesus' righteousness, doing things in his way, and don't miss this, doing this in his timing. You think about that the next time that you get in an argument with your spouse or your boss ask yourself if Christ is the king of your affections and expectations in those moments or in those seasons? Or are you more like those Israelites attacking Gibeah, talking to the Lord, getting answers, but fighting without making any sacrifices of your own? If Christ is the king of your heart and you are seeking to do what is right in his eyes, you'll be quick to get the plank out of your own eye before you get the speck out of somebody else's. Remember, friends, Samson won by weakness. Gideon won by weakness. Jesus wins by weakness. We win by weakness, recognizing Christ is king, his righteousness, not our own. It's all grace. Which leads us to the second one. The second application reject self rule. We reject self righteousness. We reject self rule. Now, this is clearly the emphasis of Judges. Time and time and time and time and time and time again, Israel did whatever they wanted to do. While at the same time taking the name of God. They worshiped the gods that were around them. They got their sin to work for their own ease and comfort. And it led them to the gates of hell. A lot of times this manifested itself in half hearted obedience. Think about the times they mostly drove out the Canaanites. But not completely as they were told. Think about how Gideon rejected the call from the people to be king, only to then go and act like a king through his taking a portion of the gold and making his own personal ephod. Or we can think again about Samson and how he kept his hair long like the Nazarite vial told him to, and yet he slept with all kinds of women, which ultimately led to his ruin. All the way down to Micah's mother, who dedicated 200 pieces of silver to the Lord. Yet at the same time, she used that to make carved images, which directly violated the second commandment. So many times, the Israelites worshiped the Lord half-heartedly, which of course was wholehearted disobedience. And I want you to be clear on this. That seemed normal to them at the time. Eventually, this half-hearted obedience led to just full-throttled disobedience. By the end, Israel is fighting with themselves, even legislating. Think about this. Legislating the destruction of men, women, and children of their own people ambushing the daughters of God who were worshiping the Lord, taking for themselves to repopulate a particular tribe that they themselves had destroyed. These guys, friends, became no different than the pagan nations that were around them, and yet they were chosen to be holy. They even took the name of a holy God. And so even though God had been so merciful to them, the Israelites could never get away from living and worshiping however they pleased. They were the rulers of their own castles, the captains of their own souls, the kings of their own consciences. And it's important to note, friend, that this slide into the sewer came very slowly, very subtly, and very reasonably. You need to know that fruit does not spoil overnight. Nor do confessing Christians spoil overnight. It begins with one otherwise benign choice to lean into Christian freedom. Easy to make that choice, which makes it easier to make the second one and the third one and the fourth one. And Before you know it, you'll even hardly recognize who you were five, ten years ago. Friends, this is how the evil one and his schemes work. This is his favorite device. Subtly trying to convince you to just lean in to your own freedoms. Like a frog in a heated pot, he slowly cooks us until it's too late. Without realizing it, we're dead. Just talk to the adulterer and ask him how he got there. He will tell you there was just a little bit of porn here. A little flirtation there. Suddenly he's out with a secretary of his instead of his wife. Talk to the alcoholic. And he'll tell you. It was just a little drink here, a little drink there. Before you know it, he can't keep himself away from the bottle. Talk to someone who has rejected so-called the Christian faith. Or maybe someone that even takes the name of Christ but hardly lives like it. What you will find in virtually every case is someone who became comfortable with life how they wanted it as opposed to life how Jesus demands it. In other words, they may have begun by sitting next to Jesus on the throne. And just asking Him, Jesus, do you mind if I just sit up on the chair up, up on the armrest there next to you? Jesus says, sure. Sure. And in their own hearts, they say, well, Jesus, can I just share the seat with you? And then before you know it, you say, Jesus, can you get off the throne? You can stay in the room. Before you know it, people like that slowly edge him off the throne in their own hearts. Self-rule for those who take the name of Christ or maybe who have been raised to submit to Christ oftentimes comes slowly and into Is It is the evil one's oldest trick in the book. If it were a math problem, it would go like this. Distraction plus deception plus time equals self-love and self-rule. And that's exactly what sent Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. So now the gods that are around us that we're tempted to adopt, they're not Baal and Ashtaroth as they were for Israel, right? We don't have any temptation. Anybody here have any temptation of following Baal? Right. No, right? Anybody tempted to follow Ashtaroth? Anybody have an Ashtaroth pole back at home? No, right? So what is it then for us? What's the temptation that we might be tempted to follow? What are the gods that are around us that we might be tempted to follow? What are they? Who are they? So that we might know the evil ones trying to slowly and indiscernibly. Have us to follow them. What are they? Well, it's clear. It's the same God that the Israelites were following. It's just not nearly as opaque. It's the God of me. It's the God of individualism. It's the God of what I want to do in the way that I want to do it. Now, to be clear, friends, there's no temples to the God of me. Which makes that idolatry, right, more subtle, more dangerous. Many people who serve the God of me are members of good churches. The evil one loves and even prefers such things to happen if he can get members of good churches to sort of follow the God of me because then he gets the same thing that he gets in chapter 19 to 21, civil war inside churches. Mixed communities that don't, look, don't have clear testimonies about holiness. He loves to take down whole churches by people that just compromise a little bit here and a little bit there. And so maybe you're asking this morning, well, how can I be careful that I am not do- adopting the God that is around me, the God of me? What can I do? How can I be sure that I'm not slowly cooking in the pot of death? I think you can pay attention. There's a lot of ways we can answer that question. I think you can pay attention to at least two things. Pay attention to your calendar. Pay attention to your checking account. And in those two things, you can find if you're beginning to adopt the God of me. Where do you spend your time and your money? Take a look back over, say, maybe the last three months three months, and evaluate how much time have you spent with Christ, His Word, His people. And pay close attention to how you prioritize those things. And don't pay attention to intentions. Pay attention to actions. It's going to reveal your heart. So for instance, let me ask you a series of questions. Did you call to mind as you were working this week? 40, 50, 60, some of you, 70 hours. Did you call to mind at some point this week The notion of Colossians 3.17. You don't have to say it like that. But you recognize that my work is ultimately I'm working for God as king. Not for my boss. Did you do that the past few months? Uh, Though you maybe had to work late a lot the last few months, did you still take the time to meditate on Christ? Maybe think about a promise. Thank God for grace. Have you done that recently? A lot recently. Maybe did you reach out to a brother or sister and ask them how that interview went? told him that you'd been praying for them? Have you picked a verse to memorize and to meditate on on your drive to work? On your drive home from work? Maybe memorize the verse as you're staying up late with your child late into the evening just to speak it over them. I can remember speaking over my son late at night. And I remember I would fumble over my words. And I would say to myself, well, I'm going to try to do this because it's going to help me when he actually can't understand what I'm saying. Have you done that? Have you woken up in enough time to prepare your heart for worship at church here? Did you wake up in enough time to prepare your heart to meet with God? Have you prioritized this gathering? This gathering where you would meet God, meet with His people, If you're a covenant member of this church, have you prioritized members meetings where we're doing that difficult, not very sexy, but important work? Did you come in here in such a time and way expecting to hear from God? Did you go to community group or if you couldn't make it to community group this past week or the week before, did you schedule a lunch with a brother or sister just so you could get some accountability just to see how they're doing, how everybody else is doing? Did you email or call or text some promise of God to somebody else that you were praying for them just to encourage them? Have you tried to read the book of Mark with a friend? Christian, non-Christian. How's the work of making disciples going? Did you spend some time reading a good book or maybe listen to a helpful sermon or a good podcast that stoked the fires of your love for Jesus? Did you serve somebody else explicitly in the name of Jesus? How much time have you spent with Jesus and with Jesus' people in the past two or three months? And regarding your money, have you helped the poor in some way the last two or three months? Have you given gladly of your money to the spread of the Gospel in some way? Did you maybe buy a loved one a gift just to tell them that you loved them? Or did you maybe buy some food and prepare it so that you can bring some of those neighbors that you know don't know Jesus and you're trying to bring them in to share the good news of Jesus and your hope in Him? Have you done that? How have you used your time and your money in the last couple of months? And would it testify that your greatest treasure is Christ is King and His people are your great delight? Would it tell a story that would illustrate Jesus is King? Would it tell a story that would illustrate that heaven is your home? Would, it, would your life agree with Psalm 16.3 that says the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all of my delight. Or would it reveal, when you evaluate your life, would it reveal that your treasure is somewhere else? Reflecting more often the God of me. I'm sure many of you are like me. I have an annual checkup once a year. It comes comes up in August. Uh, she checks my vital signs. She checks my height, and my weight, and takes my blood. And she says, "You know, sort of, you know, maybe we should do this differently. Do this different. How's that going?" We sort of make some adjustments. I have a financial advisor. Once a year, I sit down with him. Justin and I sit there. We take a look at how my money's doing over here. Maybe we should change that there. I'm sure you guys do similar things. I, I can think about my my wife and I. We go on dates. Two or three months, every two or three months at a time, somewhere, somewhere every couple, of three months we'll go out and I'll ask her three questions, oftentimes. Ask her three questions. What am I doing that I need to start doing? What am, I need, what am I doing that I need to stop doing? What am I doing that I need to keep doing? And I let her talk to me. Why do I ask her that? Because I want to stoke my love for her. Because I love my wife. I want to love her better. My wife, as many of you know, homeschools our children. And so we don't know. We don't have test scores and things that can sort of see how things are going. And so right about this time, time of the year, uh, they take tests. And why do they take tests? They they want to see how the kids are doing. Are they falling behind in math or reading or something like that? We make adjustments and on we go. Right, this is what we do. We do these kinds of things all the time. And so listen, beloved, listen to me. What is the trajectory of your soul? What is the trajectory of your soul? Is it towards the love of Jesus and of Jesus' people? Because we say that we love Jesus, that He is the most important reality in all the world, but do we take the time to evaluate how our love for Him and our love for His people is going? Are our daily, weekly, monthly habits bending us towards the love of Jesus? Bending ourselves to the love of His people? Or is it bending more to the love of the world? Beloved, what's forming your loves? What's forming your values and how are you cultivating things in that way if you were to have an appointment with the great physician, King Jesus, if you were to have an appointment with him and he were to sit down to you and he would to check your spiritual vital signs, what do you think he would tell you is the trajectory of your soul based off of the past three, four, five months? What would Jesus tell you if he was your great physician and you came in to visit him? He would look at the last three, four, five, six months. What would he say to you? What would he say is the trajectory of your soul for the next five, 10 or 15 years? Based off of the last few months. Friends, the warnings of the Bible are all over the place. They remind us that we are at war. And yet I think, myself included, I can oftentimes live as though we are at peace. We hardly take the time to notice that many of our convictions are eroding. And our love for Jesus and Jesus' people is cooling. As is evidenced by the way that we spend our time and our money. The Lord speaks tragically at the end of the Bible about the church in Ephesus. It says in Revelation 2.4, the Lord says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned your first love. That's the church in Ephesus. Paul writes to his young disciple Timothy, keep a close watch on your life and your doctrine. To that same church in Ephesus, Paul says, look carefully how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of time. God forgive me. I haven't done that this morning. To the church in Corinth, Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, he says. Speaking to to pastors, but I think it's sound counsel for all of us in Acts chapter. 20 says, Pay careful attention. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, that's the church, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God. How important is the church to God? Which Jesus obtained with his own blood. I know, he says, that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. From among your own selves, guys, right here, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to do what? To draw away the disciples after them. We read tragically at the very end of Paul's life. He wrote of his good friend and traveling companion, Demas. Frequent traveling companion with him on the mission field. And yet at the end of his life, Paul wrote, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone on to Thessalonica. Friends, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew his Old Testament well. He knew judges better than all of us know judges. He knew that half-hearted devotion ends in full-hearted rebellion every single time. And so friends, as we step away from the book of Judges, let us not lose sight of its warning. Let us be careful to prioritize our love for Christ as King And submit all of our life to Him. Let us be careful to reject self-righteousness. Reject self-rule. And to orient habits and daily things. That are rejecting our desires. And putting ourselves under His feet. That we would love Him and know Him. And enjoy Him forever. And enjoy His people. Spreading the good news of Christ. This book, friends, is trying to convince you of one thing at the end of the day. There's a better King. And His name is Jesus. He's better than you. He's a better king than you. He knows what's best for you. He is such a good king. He is a faithful king. A king that broken people felt comfortable around. A king that was loving enough to say things to people when they didn't want to hear them because he cared for them. To confront people When they make wrong choices, that's how good a king he is because he knows and believes that there's something more important. He's trying to wake us up. This good king, Jesus Christ, is trying to wake us up from the slumber that the evil one so often is putting us around, making us to slumber. And he wakes us up and says, I'm here. All authority in heaven and earth is mine. You'll never get righteousness. You'll never get joy. You'll never get freedom until you live in submission to all of me. Follow me. I'm good. I'm going to take you home the place you want to be. So do the kinds of things that will orient your love for me. That's what He's saying to us and judges. And so as we step away from it, friends, heed this warning. Do not have doctrine. Do not have a life that very conveniently fits your lifestyle. Submit yourself to King Jesus. Do the kinds of things you probably won't like, but are good for your soul. He's a good physician. And He's been ministering to us as the good doctor for these many months. And may we walk away gladly submitting our lives to Him. If you're not a Christian, can I just speak to you for a moment, just briefly say, He's a good King. He's a better King than anything else that you're trying to follow. Follow Him. Trust Him. We're a bunch of deeply flawed people here at Restoration Church, but we'll help you. He's a good King. Follow Him pray. Father, thank you for this book. Thank you that it disturbs us so that we might be awakened to follow our deliverer. And oh God, hasten the day when the war is over. And we can enjoy Jesus forever. Jesus and Jesus' people hasten the day. All the pain, evil, and suffering and the chaos are gone. And God, make us holy people at Restoration and any other gospel-believing church. Make us holy people set apart from the world so that others would see the beauty of Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.